Today on the Word Preacher Podcast, Remiumptum and Humility, Faith and the Word and the Atonement. I'm Brett Jensen and this is the Word Preacher Podcast. Right, our Come Follow Me curriculum brings us to Alma chapters 32 through uh, 35. Uh, we'll be focusing a little on uh, Alma and Amulek teaching the Zoramites. We're actually going to dip back a little bit into Alma 31 because I think this goes along very closely with the reading today. So we're starting in Alma chapter 31 verses 12 through 23, which reads, Now when they had come into the land, behold, to their astonishment, they found that the Zoramites had built synagogues, and that they did gather themselves together on one day of the week, which day they did call the day of the Lord, and they did worship after a manner which Alma and his brethren had never beheld. For they had a place built up in the center of their synagogue, a place for standing, which was high above the head, and the top thereof would only admit one person. Therefore, whosoever desired to worship must go forth and stand upon the top thereof, and stretch forth his hands towards heaven, and cry with a loud voice, saying, Holy, holy God! We believe that thou art God, and we believe that thou art holy, and that thou wast a spirit, and that thou art a spirit, and that thou wilt be a spirit forever. Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren, and we do not believe in the tradition of our brethren, which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers. But we believe that thou hast elected us to be the holy children, and also thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. But thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever, and thou hast elected us that we shall be saved, whilst all around us are elected to be cast by thy wrath down to hell, for which holiness, O God, we thank thee. And we also thank thee that thou hast elected us that we may not be led away after the foolish traditions of our brethren, which doth bind them down to a belief of Christ, which doth lead their hearts to wander far from thee, our God. And again, we thank thee, O God, that we are a chosen and a holy people. Amen. Now it came to pass that after Alma and his brethren and sons had heard these prayers, they were astonished beyond all measure. For behold, Every man did go forth and offer up these same prayers. Now the place was called by them Remiumptum, which is being interpreted the holy stand. Now from this stand they did offer up every man the selfsame prayer unto God, thanking their God that they were chosen of him, and that he did not lead them away after the tradition of their brethren, and that their hearts were not stolen away to believe in things to come, which they knew nothing about. Now after all the people had all offered up thanks after this manner, they returned to their homes, never speaking of their God again, until they had assembled themselves together again to the holy stand to offer up thanks after their manner. 
Okay, so there's a lot to break down here. Um, we're not going to spend a ton of time actually breaking it down, but it is worth kind of looking at the habits that they had. Um, in Alma 32, our reading today, uh, it begins to they begin to have some success among the poor class of people. Here are a few verses, first three verses. And it came to pass that they did go forth and began to preach the word of God unto the people entering into their synagogues and into their houses. Yea, and even they did preach the word in their streets. And it came to pass that after much labor among them, they began to have success among the poor class of people. For behold, they were cast out of the synagogues because of the coarseness of their apparel. Therefore, they were not permitted to enter into their synagogues to worship God, being esteemed as filthiness. Therefore, they were poor, yea, they were esteemed by their brethren as dross. Therefore, they were poor as to the things of the world, and also they were poor in heart. So the Zoramites, who were not in need, did not think that they needed the word of God or to alter their behavior. They were living well enough. Why change? You've got a good thing going. Um, now, it is important to note, this doesn't mean, what, what this story is, is telling us is not that wealth is bad. It's describing spiritual inertia. And this does not require a great amount of wealth to have. This is something that has been seen in many people at various stages of their lives. Um, a couple that are really easy examples were some of the first kings of Israel. Saul thought he was doing okay in offering you know, the sacrifices himself until Samuel came and informed him that was a really bad idea. And then Saul explained, oh, I've sinned before God. David thought that he was doing okay until Nathan explained to him in a very creative way that he was a killer. And then he recognized that he had sinned and he had truly fallen away from what he knew was right. When we're close to a situation, we have a tendency to fall into less meaningful habits, which can include repetitive prayers, unwillingness to serve others, casual adherence to standards, failure to study scriptures or privately seek God, and many other manifestations. The Zoramites believed themselves spiritual. They had their synagogues. They had a day of the Lord. They believed that they were uh, correct, but they didn't even think about God except this cultural observance. There was no personal or genuine spiritual connection to God. The key to avoiding these spiritual lulls, this um, in tendency to stay the way that we are, this spiritual inertia is persistent and deliberate self-motivation to repentance. 
don't wait until a prophet comes and tells you that you're in a one of your habits is not good or not in line with the gospel. Actively examine your own life and seek ways to change it frequently to better emulate God and those he chooses. Humility is knowing that we need to change, and it is better to develop this before some sort of crisis or disaster than after. All right, let's move a little bit further in Alma chapter 32 and talk about what he's telling these poor people. Uh, this is verses 17 through 22. Yea, there are many who do say, If thou wilt show unto us a sign from heaven, then we shall know of a surety, then we shall believe. Now I ask, is this faith? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. For if a man knoweth a thing, he hath no cause to believe, for he knoweth it. And now, how much more cursed is he that knoweth the will of God, and doeth it not, than he that only believeth, or only hath cause to believe, and falleth into transgression? Now of this thing ye must judge. Behold, I say unto you that it is on the one hand, even as it is on the other, and it shall be unto every man according to his work. And now, as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. And now, behold, I say unto you, and I would that ye should remember that God is merciful unto all who believe on his name. Therefore he desireth in the first place that ye should believe, yea, even on his word. All right, so let's, um, let's talk about a, a practical and modern uh, aspect of these teachings. I've heard people complain. Uh, I have personally had people complain that uh, God should not compare himself to a parent. He should not consider himself a heavenly father because that would make him an absent parent. He doesn't show himself. These individuals who are misguided, they can't prompt us towards asking an important question. Why is it that God requires faith? Does he just want us to be blind? Well, the answer is no. No, and if we continue reading... Uh, you can see that, as Alma keeps teaching, this starts in verse 27. But behold, if ye will awake and arouse your faculties even to an experiment upon my words and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. Now we will compare the word unto a seed. Now, if ye give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a good seed, or a, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if ye do not cast it out by your unbelief, that ye will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, 
it will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourselves, it must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. Now behold, would not this increase your faith? I say unto you, yea, Nevertheless, it hath not grown up to a perfect knowledge. So, in other words, God does give us something to sense and to detect. It's not blind. It just depends on how we process this. And when we think about this, this is very important to think about our spiritual senses on the same lines as our other senses. Um, if we recall from our reading last week, enemies of faith, such as Korahor, suggest that spiritual senses are not real. Only seeing or hearing are legitimate. What you feel doesn't count. And this is a misrepresentation. We talked about this last week, how spiritual sense senses are not just what you feel. Just like, um, you know, what you see, even though it could be incorrect, is not just what you feel. Uh, you're actually perceiving something. Imagine this situation. If we compare spiritual senses to, say, the sense of sight or sound. Uh, someone says, I want you to prove to me that the Egyptian pyramids, the great pyramids of Giza, exist. But because of Photoshop and sound effects, nothing that you see or hear counts. That could be fake. Now, it's possible that there are some who have touched the pyramids, but the majority have not. Therefore, they're basing all of their assumptions that these pyramids exist on unprovable images that are supported by popular culture. This is not actual proof, therefore you can dismiss it. Now, this might seem ridiculous, and it's sort of intended to be, but it is important to notice that we have more than just five senses, just like we have more than these two senses, sight and hearing. Consider the ability that the human body has to detect acceleration because of fluids in our inner ears that move around and stimulate certain nerves that help us detect when we are accelerating or when we're disoriented which is how you can, and of course, those can be fooled as well. If you spin around really quick, then those fluids can get mixed up and you'll get a sense of dizziness. But um, it's still a legitimate sense. And for the most part, people trust that sense. Also consider how even our eardrums can be used to detect changes in air pressure, from altitude, when we were driving up or down a mountain or flying in an airplane. Now imagine if you were really tuned in and observant to when these shifts occur, that you could use that as a gauge to detect how close or far you are based on the average speed from sea level. Uh, that would be quite an interesting use for something that is legitimate sense. When do my ears pop? You could tell that, maybe. Which brings us to sensory expertise. This is one of the entertaining things about stories like Sherlock Holmes. His ability to use his senses 
to detect things that others do not. This is not because he has extra senses. It's because he uses them in an expert fashion to notice things. People can be trained to notice things with their senses, such as professional taste testers that know kind of what they're looking for. They've trained by comparing certain compounds to, to be aware, to be sensitive to these flavors. Or to a much lesser degree, you have people who are art critics who may know based on brush strokes or perspective lines or uh, various other techniques whether something uh, is, is a true uh, representation of an image. Um, you also have a spiritual sense. You can detect the morality of things, and all people are born with this capability. You don't need to check the laws to know that cruelty is bad. Um, and even children are capable of feeling guilt for doing wrong without understanding the full details about why something is wrong. That's important, because if it is a legitimate sense, which it is, you can train this to be more perceptive. You can become more sensitive with your spiritual senses. And the most important tools to train in this process include the very word of God that Alma was preaching. The scriptures, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and of course also prayer, reaching out to the source of that word. These techniques, when carefully and diligently used, can help us, uh, as Alma taught, to understand that something is good. Alternatively, spiritual senses dull without this maintenance. And as he continues to teach, he emphasizes this. This starts in verse 37. And behold, as the tree beginneth to grow, ye will say, let us nourish it with great care, that it may get root, that it may grow up and bring forth fruit unto us. And now behold, if ye nourish it with much care, it will get root and grow up and bring forth fruit. But if ye neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, because it hath no root, it withers away, and ye pluck it up and cast it out. Now, this is not because the seed was not good, neither is it because the fruit thereof would not be desirable, but it is because your ground is barren, and ye will not nourish the tree. Therefore, ye cannot have the fruit thereof. And thus, if ye will not nourish the word, looking forward with an eye of faith to the fruit thereof, ye can never pluck of the fruit of the tree of life. Pretending that these senses don't count does not improve anyone. Mastery of senses, however, including our spiritual senses, can help people to make the wisest decisions. In the next chapter, Amulek begins adding his testimony to that of Alma, talking about the atonement. And there are a few verses I'd like to cover. These are verses uh, 9 through 13. 
in uh, Alma 34. For it is expedient that an atonement should be made. For according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made, or else all mankind must avoid unavoidably perish. Yea, all are hardened. Yea, all are fallen and are lost and must perish, except it be through the atonement which it is expedient should be made. For it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice, yea, not a sacrifice of man, neither of beast, neither any manner of fowl. For it shall not be a human sacrifice, but it must be an in infinite and eternal sacrifice. Now there is not any man that can sacrifice his own blood, which will atone for the sins of another. Now if a man murdereth, behold, will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, Nay, but it requireth the life of him who hath murdered. Therefore there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement, which will suffice for the sins of the world. Therefore it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice, and then shall there be, or it is expedient there should be, a stop to the shedding of blood. Then shall the law of Moses be fulfilled, yea, it shall be all fulfilled, every jot and tittle, and none shall have passed away. So, on the one hand, each of us, as we develop our spiritual sense expertise, will come to realize that we have acted foolishly. We will need to realize that this must be made right. We will have a desire to be redeemed and cleansed. And only God has power to forgive sins. This is not the same kind of forgiveness that he requires of us, that we not focus on bitterness or vengeance in regarding those who have wronged us. He is repairing a broken, immortal spirit. This process is expensive. Amulek's reasoning here has always kind of fascinated me, because it seems like he's giving a reason for why Christ can't pay for our sins. If a person cannot pay for the crime of another, like in Amulek's story, how a brother is, you can't shed his blood to pay for the, the crime of the murderer, then how on earth can Christ pay for our sins? Doesn't it require the sinner to pay for their own sins? Isn't that sort of the point Amulek was making? Now, I suspect there's a lot more to the atonement than what we are capable of understanding. But I also suspect that at least a part of it is because Jesus is the victim of our crimes. Every misdeed, every cruelty, every selfish and impure thing that we have ever done to poison ourselves or others, he suffered for it an unfathomably crushing load. Though before Satan's temptation to request angelic aid by casting himself off the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus did not give in. Under the pain of our crimes, he did have angels come to strengthen him. And at that judgment bar, when our guilts are exposed, and we are faced with the reality of our failures, who could possibly persuade a righteous judge that we should escape the punishment we so richly deserve? 
only the victim. And when he pleads before the Father, when he who suffered because of us becomes our advocate, then mercy is possible. Do not procrastinate the day of repentance. Take hold on mercy that is excessively generous and do it today. Do not ignore your spiritual senses. Practice learning good and evil. Nourish the good. Notice what God and his prophets and apostles are prioritizing. And finally, there will be no proud that stand before our Father in heaven, but those who have humbled themselves earlier will be far better off than those who are compelled at the end to acknowledge their evils. We appreciate all the support for the Ward Preacher podcast. Uh, Next week, we will be looking at Alma chapters 36 through 38, discussing small and simple things that bring great things to pass. Of course, there's a lot we did not cover in today's reading. Ensure that you study that uh, individually and with your family. And of course, as always, fight on.